This episode is brought to you by Audible. Go to audibletrial.com forward slash third space. That's T-H-I-R-D-S-P-A-C-E for a 30-day trial, which gets you one credit, which is basically one book that you can download. If you are an Amazon Prime member, you actually get two credits. So that's two free audiobooks. I am a huge fan of Audible since this uh, coronavirus and pandemic. I've really gotten into uh, listening to three audiobooks and, and at, at a time, just so I have varying thoughts and ideas in my head that isn't the current pandemic. So if you need a distraction and you want to support this podcast, go to audible.com forward slash third space. Welcome back to the Third Space Podcast. I'm your host, Faiza Farah. I wanted to begin the podcast by just saying thank you. Thank you to all of our listeners, uh, for folks that send us messages and words of encouragement and uh, ping us when we don't drop a new episode. Um, we are making our way, you know, we're, we're really trying to uh, get you the the best quality uh, guests that really speak to this particular time. And uh, so I appreciate your patience and people have asked uh, how they can support us. I would say that the best way to support is first to listen, to share and to rate it and comment. This helps us a great deal because um, it helps us kind of move along in the algorithm and, and and our podcast gets presented to a larger audience. So if you love what we do and you want to find a way to support us, take two minutes out of your day and give us a five star if you believe that we deserve it. And um, and leave us a comment as well on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Another way that you can support our podcast is is going to our Instagram and following us on Instagram. Um, our handle is at THRDSPC. And there you'll find a link tree where you can shop in our merch store uh, or um, support us on Patreon. Um, there are many ways to support this independent um, podcast and, and we really appreciate all of your support. I'm so excited to present our next guest, Dr. Wes Bellamy, who's the author of When White Supremacy Knocks, Fight Back, How White People Can Use Their Privilege and How Black People Can Use Their Power. He is the former vice mayor of Charlottesville, Virginia, and the youngest person who was ever elected to that position. He currently serves as the political science department chairman at Virginia State University. He's also the national co-chair of the newly developed Our Black Party, which is a political platform focused on advancing the needs of black people in America. As you can imagine, this is a perfect time to speak to Dr. Wes Bellamy. We talk about everything, uh, everything from his uh, origin in in uh, Atlanta and Charlottesville and how that kind of fortified him in, in his political uh, career. We talk about the state of Black America and we talk about the current political system. So as you can imagine, it is a very meaty uh, conversation and I, I, I really 
enjoyed speaking to Dr. West and, and felt like it was a really fruitful conversation. I hope you enjoy. Here's my conversation with Dr. West Bellamy. Thank you again for being on our program. I'm so, so excited to talk to Dr. Wes Bellamy. Um, how are you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Big fan of the third space. So I'm actually honored that you all would have little old me on the show. So again, thanks for having me and much love to you all. You're too kind. Thank you. Uh, so I guess before we get into your uh, really exciting new book, When White Supremacy Knocks, Fight Back, I want to get a little bit about your origin story. Where did you grow up? Where were you born? Sure. I was born in uh, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. All my family is from South Carolina here in the States. And I was actually raised in Atlanta, Georgia. I moved to Atlanta um, when I was maybe one or two or something like that, a very young child, grew up there, spent most of my adolescence years there. Um, and then within the book, you'll you'll hear me talk a great deal about while I grew up in Atlanta and I have uh, tons of fond memories there. My family, when we're talking about uh, defeating white supremacy, my family, specifically my father's side of the family and where they're from, Atlantic Beach, South Carolina, which is one of the only black owned beaches in the entire United States and one of, I think, less than three on the East Coast. Um, Atlantic Beach there in itself played a huge role in my development. Uh, so specifically when we talk about just having our own spaces, but seeing the importance of taking care of communities, taking care of each other, making sure that we support and love each other as black folk, but also standing up and defying the odds and fighting back against white supremacy. Um, all of that played a huge role and specifically um, from, my, from a background perspective. I moved to Charlottesville, Virginia in 2009, um, actually just a little over 11 years ago, which is which is crazy to say. At this point, um, I went to undergrad in South, at South Carolina State University, moved here to Charlottesville in 2009. I ran for office um, in 2013. The first time uh, I wound up, excuse me, I ended up losing that election by four votes. There was a tie at the polls and then I lost the election by four votes. So don't ever let people tell you that your vote doesn't count. And um, two years later, I ran for office again and wound up uh, winning my election and becoming the leading vote getter and uh, first person to win all 10 precincts. And, and since then, we've kind of elevated this work from looking at Confederate statue removals to focusing and writing equity packages and developing developing policy specifically around equity and whatnot. But, but more than anything, as I've learned and just grown from a younger man to uh, what I still consider to be a young man, still learning more about himself every day, is that white supremacy forms and shows itself in a, in a myriad of different ways. And we have to be like a Swiss army knife if we're truly going to defeat it. So I'll shut up there because I just said a whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to, um, I'm, I'm always really curious when I talk to um, folks that are public servants in, in one form or another, if, if there were traces of that in your upbringing, were you like, you know, like a 12 year old kid that wanted to be in like 
um, it, you you know wanted to be the school president or 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 were you really like um, just uh, interested in current events or debate? How how did those uh, aspects of of your personality show up at a young age? Yeah, and and again we we talk about this in the book, so I encourage everybody to to get it. But um, I was actually an, an avid reader as a kid, and the neighborhood that I grew up in um, and that we frequented. They, they weren't the best neighborhoods by far, <laughs> to, to say the least. However, um, ironically enough, I was always told, even by guys who were like hustling, people who were just around the way, whatever, I was always told that I was special, was, was always told that I was different. I was uh, at a consistent reinforcement of you're going to be someone one day. And I believed it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the power of what we speak and how we speak life and to our children, specifically little black boys and girls or those who don't even identify or still trying to figure out themselves, the words that we speak over them play a huge role. So, you know, from from probably five or six years old, I just always believed that I was special. I believed that I was different. I didn't think that I was necessarily going to go into politics, but I enjoyed reading. I love to read um, as much as I love playing basketball and football and, and box. And I was pretty decent at all three. Um, I, I just knew that if I could just stay down and stay focused, there would be more for me. And uh, the manifestation of that, I think, is um, a neighborhood pushing someone to to reach his highest heights and also letting him know that we're counting on you, we're depending on you, but we got your back. So go soar and fly as far as you can, because there's always people who are waiting in the shadows who got your back and they're willing and ready to come to defend you. At, at any point in time. So, you know, you can operate with a little more freely when you know that people got your back. So people are, <laughs> you know, I'll leave it there. Well, I, I think what you're, what you're saying about people speaking things into you and your life is just so valuable because the adverse is also so true when, when you, you know, when you are a black person or a brown person in the United States, there's also so much um, psychic, mm-hmm. uh, you know, trauma that you endure from all of the messaging that is like kind of slanderous um, messaging that that and toxic that is constantly swirling around you, and so you you know uh, the 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 tragedy is that some of us believe that negative messaging because we're we can be young and impressionable and 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 the 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 proof of it is that that you know you are you're a testimony of people speaking life and really affirming the highest qualities of yourself you know and um so it's yeah it's just really powerful hearing you say that it really helps to kind of crystallize that because it's like yeah well you know the consequence of not doing that is is having you know young people out there that that believe a lie you know believe a lie about themselves um so when did you like when you decided to kind of enter how how did enter public office how 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 did you come to that decision cuz there's one aspect of like being politically aware uh, and commun- like engaged to your community and then thinking like this system that's like historically not really served us well, I might, I might want to enter and, and, and fight from within. So when did you make that, that choice, that leap? Yeah. In all honesty, it wasn't even that deep for me. Um, <laughs> it was more like something I, didn't <laughs> know I had to do. No, I, I mean, I, I tell people all the time, I think sometimes folks look at me like I'm super Negro or something, but 
I just tell them I'm a, I'm a regular guy. Like I'm, I'm regular, just like everyone else. Um, God may have just, you know, what my religion and my faith just leads me to believe that God may have given me some gifts and I may be a little more brave or crazy, however you deem to look at it than other folks, but, but we're all essentially the same. So for me, um, when I first moved to Charlottesville, I started a boxing club for kids. And uh, that's kind of what people first began to know me for. Um, I would have young folks. We would jog all around the city and we were in this little small community center, but it was in the hood. And um, it just reminded me a lot of where I grew up and boxing is what we did. So, you know, just training the kids up is what we do. We got an award Mm -hmm. from the city council one evening. And um, while at the city council meeting in which we brought our boxers to, one of my uh, boxers, DeCorey, he was nine years old. He asked me, Coach West, why isn't there anyone who looks like us on the city council? And uh, mm-hmm. we always talk about, you know, if you see a problem, you have an issue, don't complain about it, be the solution. So it was kind of that thing where it hit me right in my face where I can't talk about what needs to be done or I can't tell this young man that, uh, well, you know, it's not anyone who looks like us up there for this reason or that reason. I just needed to run for office to try to be the change. And that's what happened. Oh, wow. That's, um, yeah. I mean, you, you, you make, I mean, I, I, I appreciate the, the humility, but, uh, there's, there is a, there is a barrier sometimes, a mental barrier for people in terms of seeing themselves there. And, and I like the idea of, um, not complaining and just kind of getting in there and, and, and doing it, but, but there is a barrier, you know, we, we know many people in our lives that would be really great, reluctant leaders, you know, They would be exceptional, sure. but would not make that leap. So that's interesting. I mean, again, um, I think I think though, when we talk about confidence and how do we mm. encourage, how do we encourage the people within our community? How do we give them a sense of that we got your back? So at the at the very worst, just try. Even even if you fail, you really don't lose because you've shown us that we could do something that we didn't even think we could do. So even when I moved to Charlottesville, like I'm not from here per se. And I'm not an individual who, um, you know, I didn't grow up here and, and things of that nature, but I did have a sense of belonging to this community very early on after moving here and mm-hmm. a sense of people just kind of telling me that we got your back. So if people have your back, you're, you're a lot more susceptible to be able to push for change and do so knowing that there are a group of people who are riding with you. So again, you know, it's, it's easy to jump out that plane when you know you got a parachute. It's right. easier to jump out the plane. It's easier to go and get in the fray when you know, you know no matter what, I can still go back here and, and folks are still going to be with me. So, you know, that was kind of my thought process. One thing that stands out about what you're saying is, well, and I think this really is um, something that is highlighted in your book. Mm-hmm. Um what what's interesting is that it really comes from like a power perspective. It isn't there isn't like a a, a victim or or uh, not at all. Yeah, yeah. That, that 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 there's like there's a collective power that you're you're talking about emphasizing. Can you talk more about that? Well, I mean, again, I grew up I grew up in a community um, in Atlanta in which, well, again, my neighborhood wasn't the best, but outside of my neighborhood. All I saw was black mayors. I grew up seeing black mayors. I grew up seeing black police chiefs. I grew up seeing um, black principals. I grew up mm-hmm. seeing black people in positions of power. So I, I never grew up with the with a sense of 
I couldn't do something. Like I'm growing up in Atlanta, the, the home of, of Dr. King. And whatever it is I want to do, we can do. And then when you couple that, couple that with um, where my family's from in Atlantic Beach, South Carolina, where again it's it's black entrepreneurs, it's people who are living life, who are doing things, doing what they want to do, how they want to do them, and people are speaking life over me. There's just a, an internal confidence that that comes mm-hmm. over you. Um, my mother's side of the family are, is a very religious uh, group of folk. They grew up in the church, and they also, um, you know, they also often reminded me. Uh, there's a running joke on both sides of the family that I was the worst. I was the worst little kid that anyone ever met. Um, <laughs> I'm the only one that could make my grandmother curse, and I was a little, um, I was a little rambunctious as a kid. But, Wild. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I would test test limits, but I but I think that. It was all a maturation process in which I was learning um, what real leadership looks like. And you can use your talents for good or you can use them for bad. Which one would you rather do? So when we talk about from an empowerment perspective, I always knew. And even from the books that I read, like you know, one of my first books that I read in its totality was Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, mm-hmm. Read uh, the autobiography of Malcolm X at a young age. Watched the movie, mm-hmm. the Spike Lee movie when I was probably eight. And nine, I probably watched that movie about about twenty times. Um, mm-hmm. Had it memorized, so I always, you know, again, just very early on, have this sense of whatever it is that I want to do, I can do it. So then, as you get older, and I moved to a place like Charlottesville, where, um, you know, the the African American population in the city is is nineteen percent, and then in the county, the surrounding area is about ten percent. So in totality, um, because the two jurisdictions blend there's not a lot of black folk. So when I come from, where I come from seeing the opposite, and then again, going to historically black colleges and universities where I'm getting this sense of confidence instilled in me to a whole other degree, my perspective and viewpoint and vantage point may be different from other folks because I know just innately within myself, I have an internal confidence in which I believe that I can do anything. And then as a people, I believe that we are the descendants of Masa Musa. We are the descendants of the most resilient people to ever walk the earth. All of the things that we've been through, not only in the motherland, but here in America, I come from that lineage. So no, I'm not defeated. I'm not disenfranchised. I'm not less than in any capacity. Although there are policies that try to make us be defeated and right. try to, to keep us um, on the on the, quote, the proverbial back of the bus, I know that if there's a will, there's a way. And while other people may not have my experience, it's my responsibility. This is just what I believe. It's my responsibility to help them see things as I see them and empower them to get to the point in which we all uh, take our rightful place in this land, because this is our country. It's not anyone else's. It's just mine. You know, one thing that I oftentimes think about um, when when I think about blackness in America is that just we know that obviously we're not a monolith, that we don't have, um, you know, uh, one singular perspective. But I'm curious about what it what it would look like uh, to you in particular to harness a collective black power when you have, you know, Black immigrants, uh, Black Americans that are dis- descendants of enslaved Africans, Christians, mm-hmm. Muslims, atheists, mm-hmm. uh, uh, conservatives, uh, centrists—you yeah. know, uh, it, you know, whatever. Well, H- how do we how do we harness that collective Black power when 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 we aren't you know we're not really like single minded? 
you know? Yeah, well, that's the power within it. The power is us understanding that we're not a monolithic group. So because we're not a monolithic group and we are so diverse, we have the ability to control a wide variety of different avenues. If we can get to a point in which we can understand that, that, yeah, I may be Christian and you may be Muslim and she may be atheist and I may be dark skinned, she may be light skinned, she may be from the suburbs, I may be from the hood, she may not have went to college, he may not have went to college, I may have three degrees, but within all of that, we still come from a resilient group of people because our basis is the diaspora in Africa. If we can all get to that point, that's how we utilize and we galvanize our power. And I think the more in which we can spread love to each other, the more in which we can see the value in each other, the better off that we will be. And as you can hear, my daughter Stokely is looking to join. I love it. I love it. (laughs) I love it. Um, I love the sound of children in the background. I just like it when, you know, things don't feel so sterile and just, you know, feels like life. Hello. (laughs) Um, So, so yeah, I, I, I want to, to ask you about what, um, what white people, Mm -hmm. um, uh, and like what what their responsibility with the power that they have yeah. is in in this struggle um and 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 then also like what is what do you think about this idea of whiteness and 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 is it something that really you know makes sense that the reason why i'm asking this is like um I grew up in many different places and oftentimes in those places you wouldn't refer to white people as white people. You'd be like, Hey, where are you from? They're like, well, I'm Polish, I'm Italian, whatever. And then this idea of kind of um, making people into this, like this one group Mm -hmm. has a, has a way of, of um, yeah, just making it seem like everyone else is a, is a, is a deviation from whatever norm their, their, their race is which is kind of strange, you know? And so I'm curious what you think the responsibility for so-called white people is in this particular time yeah. um, and, and, and their power. Yeah, I think they have to, well, one, utilizing their privilege. And, and that is the most important aspect of it all, in my personal estimation, that white people have to understand the privilege that they have to be able to navigate and walk through these systems without thinking twice in regards to how they may be judged, regards to how they may be uh, treated, in, in regards to just any of the barriers or any of the thought, the things that may come in the thought process of Black folk, no matter where you're from in this current space. We always have to think about or analyze, or I would hope that we analyze and think about kind of those um, aspects of it. So that's the first piece, recognize your privilege. And then the second piece is, okay, so within your privilege, there's a there's a, a bit of power, a good bit of power that comes along with the privilege, i.e. they are essentially responsible for the systems that are currently in place. Therefore, they're responsible for educating themselves on how those systems are disadvantageous to folks of color. And then they have a responsibility to work diligently to ensure that those systems are not just reformed, but abolished and uh, developed anew. There, there is no, and specifically when you look at something like criminal justice reform in the current systems that we have in place, they can't be reformed. Like those systems have to be dismantled and then started anew. Mm-hmm. And white people have a responsibility to ensure that that happens. But we as black folk and people of color and so forth have a responsibility of being not only patient with people, but impatient with progress 
and doing our part and ensuring that in every single crook and nanny and corner of this country and the world for that matter, we are pushing for better. Even when it's difficult, even when it's tiring, even when it's challenging, even when it's brain draining, we have to be willing to have conversations. We have to be willing to develop new policy. We have to be willing to run for office. We have to be willing to push bold policy when we're in office. And that's kind of, again, what the book is about. When white supremacy knocks, like how do you fight back? White people have to use their privilege and black folk, we have to recognize our power and use our power as well. Oftentimes when we talk about race in America, it, it, it is a very kind of black and white conversation. And I just finished reading Isabel Wilkerson's book, um, Cast, mm-hmm. and she refers to the race or racial ice folks in the United States within the system of a caste, the caste system. Yeah, um, and like India and so forth. Right, like India. And what's so interesting about it is that they're, what she considers people in the middle caste is like uh, Latino, Asian, um, Southeast Asian. Um, and and I'm, I'm curious about where you see them fitting into the struggle. Um, there are some folks that uh, when coming to the United States, when they can pass, they they enter into this like I'm white project, you know, and then and then others that that can't blend in in that same way, and so have 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 experienced discrimination in the United States, um, and so I'm curious, like how how do how how do other folks also uh, fit into this this struggle? I think I think it's important for us to understand that even the thought that like even for like our Latino, our Latinx brothers and sisters or those who may be from um, uh, Asian backgrounds and whatnot, when they seem to think that they are better than any other groups of people based off the color of their skin and the things that may be afforded to them, that is also a byproduct of white supremacy. White supremacy mm. essentially wants us all to not only compete with each other, but also get to a point in which we believe that one of us is better than others of us because of how we look. If you look at the, the early stages of um, when individuals were enslaved, even what they did to black folk, like separate us by light skin and darker skin, separate us by curly hair or crinky or, or uh, straight hair and th- coarse hair and straight hair, things of that nature. When you look at individuals from other countries who come to America and they say, well, well, don't be like, you know, black Americans or don't act like in this way from how we mm-hmm. portray, how we are portrayed on television to the stereotypes that people often try to associate with all of us of different backgrounds. Those are byproducts of white supremacy. And within the book, there are several data points. The book is kind of half memoir, but half uh, anecdotal with research and data points that breaks down and shows the origin of a lot of this as well. I mean, even from things regarding the homophobia, which is also a byproduct of white supremacy. I, I understand um, Wilkerson's point in regards to the caste system, but I think that is is very easy to regulate it, to say, well, you know, to, to make it that simplistic. Like, no, all of this, we have to be diligent in calling it exactly what it is. These are byproducts of white supremacy. White people have a duty and an obligation to fix it. Black people and Latin Latin American people, excuse me, uh, Latinx people and Asian people and everyone else, we have a responsibility to do our part. That's fixing ourselves. That's playing a role in improving our communities. But the overall onus in all of this, I'm not going to say it's all on white people, 
but they do play a large role in fixing these systems. And until they do so, we're going to continue to see uprisings and people fight back. And we may get to a point in which we just take it over, which is the last thing I feel. Well, I'm I'm curious, since you mentioned white supremacy, we had the presidential elections a few days ago. Uh-huh. Uh, what what are some of your uh, what are some of your thoughts when I when I mention the presidential uh, debates? What 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 are some of the things that come up for you just off the top of your head? Well, the main thing I think what sticks out to a lot of people is just the the, the fact and aspect that we currently have a resident in 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Um, who refuses to denounce white supremacy and, in fact, is is uh, <laughs> actually okay with empowering them. Now, this isn't something new for me. Like, I live in Charlottesville, Virginia. I'm the guy, for better or worse, uh, blamed for starting all this Confederate statue stuff. So I was very much in it, serving as the only Black person on city council and the youngest elected official in the city when I... Uh, the, the president when 45 went on national TV and said there were good people on both sides. So, you know, for me, he's just reinforcing things that we already knew, but I think that there's an opportunity and obligation for all of us to get active in the fight. And it's not just about the presidential election. We have midterm elections. We have state house seats. We have gubernatorial races. We have local elections, school board, city council, county commission that we all may have a white supremacist or two, who just operates in a much more covert way that we need to address and deal with. So, you know, it's an opportunity for us all to open our eyes. What did you think about uh, just the the lack of conversation about race um, in in uh, this the debate? 100, was... The 103 seconds in which they talked about it. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, it's really, really shocking. I mean, Obviously, we we know who Trump is in many ways, and and what's the the blessing of Trump is that uh, white people in the United States uh, can no longer say that that race isn't at the center of every system in the United States when he's he's so desperately unwilling to to call out and and stand against white supremacy which seems like a really baseline thing to do because you can still carry on being racist but he can't even say that so it's uh-huh. it's it's really blatantly clear um but but for Joe Biden um it, when when talking about race, he has to quickly get to a place where he ha- mentions the police and how they're good people and 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 kind of yada yada race. And then let me get back to talking about how I'm really centrist. What does that say about the 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 Democrats and 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 how tone deaf they are? And what does it say about how the Democrats value black people um, in their party? Well, I think like that's part of the reason why we started Our Black Party, which is a political platform to center the needs of black folk, to own our own politics, to ensure that our agenda is met. And I think we all have to get to a point um, to understand that before you were Republican, before you were a Democrat, before you were an independent, before you had any political affiliation, you were black. And there's nothing wrong with us speaking boldly and declaring that not only our lives matter, but black lives won't matter until black policies and if any person from any side of the aisle does not have the gall to be able to declare not only that our lives matter, but work diligently to ensure that we get we're getting what we need um, in a tangible way, then we need to seriously analyze why would we support that person with our vote? 
I firmly believe that the ballot is our weapon and we have to aim and shoot wisely. So until individuals, again, um, show us what they show us that we matter and we need to, to consider and look at um, alternatives. And I think it's, again, it's important for us to be able to speak for our needs, speak for ourselves and do what we have to do for ourselves owned by us. Do you think it's it's time to re-examine the two-party system in the United States? Oh, undoubtedly. It's it's past time. I mean, yeah. it's, it's past time. Uh, honestly, in the two-party system that we have is rooted in white supremacy. Like this two-party mm. system that was created was not for either one of us. When you look at both parties have done significant damage to our communities, uh, even from the, the compromise of 1877, in which federal troops were removed from throughout the South and essentially Racial terror was brought forth upon Black folk um, throughout the South. When you look at kind of the individuals who were in positions of power during the Civil Rights Movement, their reluctance, even when you look at uh, who are in position of power now, like we can't trust someone just because they're a Democrat and we can't look for love just because someone identifies as a Republican. I think it's important, again, for people who own our politics and we have to build our own political army. And it sounds far-fetched to so, so, so many people because many of us have been brainwashed to just think things are going to be what they've always been. But if we can believe, just like we can believe the value and love each other, we can believe that we can own our own politics, we'll see a change. And I think that we are going to see a change. I think this will be the last election in which things currently go as they are right now. And what are some of the things that, that need to be part of this idea of a Black agenda? Um, Understanding that there isn't just one quote unquote, black agenda like they're because we're a monolithic group. Um, that means that we have a, a wide variety of different thoughts that we can all uh, adhere to. And I mean, we have to make sure that you know, trans lives are being supported. We have to ensure that uh, our brothers and sisters who, who don't identify as lives are being supported. Um, economic equity is important. Affordable housing is important. Criminal justice, uh, recreation is important. And we have some of the best and brightest minds in the world. Our Black Party, we stand in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. We literally use the agenda from uh, Black to the Future. My sister, Alicia Garza, um, we are in support of the movement for Black Lives. And shout out to my sister, Jessica Bird and, and everyone working over there. So we're getting there. It, it just takes time, but it's a marathon. I ask all of our guests this, but what is a lesson or an idea, a thought that you thought was uh, was was certain, and then just through growth uh, that you were able to kind of uh, unlearn an idea that was maybe not serving you any longer. Any any things that that you had to kind of learn and then unlearn because they no longer served you? Yeah, someone doesn't have to look like you to uh, support you and ride for you. That's probably the mm. biggest thing that I've learned. Just because someone looks like you doesn't mean that they will fight and support you. And, and again, just because someone doesn't look like you doesn't mean that they uh, won't ride for you the way in which they should. So um, that's that. Thank you so much for making uh, time for us to chat. I really, really appreciate you and I appreciated our conversation. Thank you, Wes. Thank you. I appreciate you.